You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, that would be fantastic. We at Meadowbrook, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe that it is authoritative. We believe that when you read the words in this book, the Bible, that you hear the very voice that spoke the galaxies into existence. That's, that's how seriously, or how serious we take this, this book. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians. The words will be on the screen, uh, beginning of verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You may be seated. So, you know, Resurrection Sunday... When we gather together, you know, pastors tend to be on their best behavior. Uh, we try to we put more seats in there because there's a lot of visitors that tend to come on uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And uh, I had my sermon all planned out, and uh, I was not at peace with it. So guess what I did yesterday? Yes, I rewrote my sermon and uh, picked a different passage. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that, that happened. Here, here's what I was thinking about. I was I just, and what led to me just changing things up a little bit. God is in the business of using weak people, and He's in the business of 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 using foolish things to do to do only what He can do. The cross of Jesus Christ. The the the, the reality that this Jesus lived a life that we could not live, and then went to a Roman cross to die. And then to believe that he rose on the third day and is coming back to judge the living and the dead is considered by many not only foolish, but a myth. It's the thing that you see on movies and nothing more. And so what I want to do is I just want you to think about this question. What is the cross to you? Now, I'm not going to focus on the death of Christ, but I just want to ask, what is the cross to you? It, it, the cross, historically, was one of the most brutal forms of execution. I talked a little bit about that on Good Friday, which this past Friday. It was invented by the Persians, um, and the Romans you know, perfected it. It was such a horrible way to die that Roman citizens were typically exempt from that kind of execution. In fact, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, because he was a Roman citizen, was exempt from crucifixion. So instead, 
because of this word of the cross, the gospel that he believed, this message that he believed, Paul was sentenced to death and he was beheaded. Peter, the, the other apostle, Peter, who uh, we read a portion from First Peter, he was crucified. Some believe that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy to be crucified in the manner that his Savior was crucified. He was not a Roman citizen. And so it was considered, a, a, one of, in fact, one historian, early, early historian, and I think the fourth century or whatever, said that the cross or crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths, and rightly so. They would, typically men would be crucified, they would be crucified with their backs to the cross, and on rare occasions when women were crucified, they were crucified facing the cross. Uh, we get the word excruciating from the word crucifixion. Literally, it means excruciating. And so this Jesus that we're celebrating, his resurrection today, was crucified on that instrument of torture. Paul said here in 1 Corinthians, he said that this cross, that the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness, it's moronic, it makes no sense to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there are people in this room right now who are, an, who are a living example of God's power in your life. He's transforming your life. He's transforming your life spiritually uh, because of the power of the gospel and the effect that the gospel has had on your life. He, he's a, that's affected your marriage in many ways, in a positive way. Uh, it has affected the way you interact with different people. It is the power of God to transform lives. And that's what I want to focus on today. The, the word of the cross has the power to save. When Paul says the word of the cross here, what I want you to hear is not just Jesus dying on the cross. When he says the word of the cross, what he's talking about is Jesus' death, then he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. That is the word of the cross. He he was taken down from the cross. He didn't remain there. Uh, He was put in a tomb. He didn't remain there. Death couldn't keep him. He, he, He conquered death. He rose on the third day. And a whole bunch of people witnessed his resurrection. It literally, the word of the cross turned the Roman world upside down. And so the word of the cross has the power to save. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which that was my original passage I was going to preach on this morning, Paul wrote later on in this letter, he said, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he was raised according to the scriptures. And that message is foolish to a world that is blind. And maybe you're here today and you think, man, that's kind of weird, it's foolish, I don't know if I I believe it, and that's okay. I grew up, you know, I I grew up in the Catholic Church, and then when I was in my high school years, I became a skeptic and didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be until, until I was crossing a a busy road and stepped in front of a car and found myself on my back knowing that if I died, I'd probably go to hell. The power of the cross to transform lives, the power of the word of the cross to transform lives, you're seeing a living example of that. He changes lives. And so it's through the message of the cross that God is rescuing you know, sinners from his wrath. You know, like I, I, I say this often, if you're, if you're new to Meadowbrook today, I say this often, that Jesus lived a life that we could never live, and he died a death that each and every one of us in this room and around the world deserved to die. 
He went to a cross, and it wasn't just the death on the cross that was the most horrible thing about it. It was what he experienced on the cross. He went to a cross, and he experienced what the, what the Bible describes as the wrath of God for our sins. He hung there, and he died. In verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, he, there were two types of people. There were those who were perishing, and then there was who were being saved in light of the word of the cross. Those who are perishing see the message of the cross as nothing more than crazy. It's the way I used to see it. I, re- I remember after my father became a Christian, a year before I did, many of you know the story, my father had his hand cut off. Uh, I don't know what it is about our family. <laughs> I, my dad had his hand cut off, I got hit by a car, and my brother was electrocuted. And God used all three of those events to, to get our attention. And and my dad became a believer, and then he would tell me about Jesus, and I would say to him, well, prove to me there aren't two gods. Why do I, why do I need to go through Jesus to get to heaven? And then, then I was hit by the car, and I became a, that's a whole other story, and I, I gave my life to Christ. And later on in life, when my, father, when my brother was 40 years old, he was changing a fixture. He was an industrial electrician changing a fixture, and the, the, the foreman before him forgot to turn the power off, and he was electrocuted. He had like 400 and some was it watts or volts, whatever that can kill you, it went through his body. Fell off an eight-foot ladder, landed on his back, fractured several vertebrae, is in excruciating pain. And you know what? I talked to him yesterday. And I asked him, I said, Dave, how you doing? He said, I'm great. No, no Dave, how, how are you, like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How's your health? I, who cares about my health? Like, he said to me a, a bunch of times, that was the best thing that could ever have happened to him and induced in him uh, epilepsy that they still haven't been able to control. You know, he, he's on all kinds of medicine and, and he's in severe chronic pain. And he looks back on that day when he was 40 years old as the best thing that could have ever, ever have happened to him. The power of the word of the cross has the power to transform lives. But before that, my brother wasn't really that all convinced. He acknowledged that Jesus existed and all that stuff, but it, wasn't, it didn't really have an effect on his life until, until he found himself on his back. I baptized him not long after that. It was one of the greatest days of my life, aside from me coming to faith in Jesus. The word of the cross has the power to transform lives. Paul says, in, in, uh, later on, he says that the natural person, here, let's, let's read this together, ready? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Meaning there's just blinders on, on people's eyes, and, and it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would God do that? Couldn't he have done it another way? In fact, one person, a uh, historian and, and so-called theologian, said that he, the way he sees the cross, and he just rejects the idea that God would save people this way, he looked at it as, if God did it this way, then it's cosmic child abuse. And so people see it that way. It's veiled to those who are perishing. But those who are being saved, it is the power of God to transform lives. It's one of the greatest miracles represented in this room for those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And not just think that you did, but you're living examples of the, of the power that that has had in your life. And so, it is... Not only the gospel that removes the veil of spiritually blind people, but it is also 
uh, done in partnership with, with, with God. He's the one that does it. Like, how do you explain a 16-year-old kid, that was me, laying in a bed in a hospital, and, and Daryl O'Dare was at my, the foot of my bed, my dad was on my right side, and Jackie Peregrine was on the left side. They were both believers. They came to Christ at the same time, so I couldn't get away from Jesus. And then Daryl O'Dare, who was the husband of the nurse assigned to my care in my hospital room, was sharing the gospel with me, and I was like, I listened, I was polite. He left, and then when I got home on July 18th, it made sense to me. It hit me like a flood. How do you explain that? Except for the fact that a miracle happened in my life. I gave my life to Jesus on that day. And my life has never been the same since. And, and so Paul says, it's through that, I, that that God has chosen to transform the world, to turn the world upside down. In another passage, it says this, that, that in the Old Testament, it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the, the discerning I will thwart. Jesus said, let's read this together, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What, what is Jesus saying? He's saying a miracle has to happen for you to believe that, that, that the word of the cross, that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, and that he rose on the third day, and that, that that is the way that you can be saved, that a miracle has to happen in your, in your mind and in your heart for that to take residence in, in your life. And many of you are living examples of that. And some of you are wondering, man, is this real? Is this legit? I'm just here because I love my, the person sitting next to me. Or uh, maybe you're here because you didn't want to enter into an argument this morning. <laughs> We're going to church. Okay, yes. <laughs> I will go to church because I like food afterwards. <laughs> my, my mentor said, be careful not to anger the one who cooks your food. Right? So some of you may be here for that purpose and for that reason. God alone is the one who's capable of saving. It, was, it is God alone who saves through the means of his son who sent him to die in our place under the wrath of God, and, and after being buried in a tomb for three days, he rose again. And that tomb is empty today. Paul said in verse 17 of this passage, he said, you know, I didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I just told you that this Jesus died for your sins, was crucified, you know, when he did that, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And it turned the, the, the world of these Corinthian Christians upside down. God rescued them from paganism and from worship of all kinds of other things. Which leads me to, the, to the, the, my second, and only my second point. The word of the cross powerfully transforms lives. It transforms lives. From the beginning, God demonstrated his wisdom in redeeming a cursed creation that the world and its wisdom deemed ridiculous. Like, God is in the business of doing that. And if, I, if you're like, maybe you're like, did he just say cursed creation? yes. Our world is upside down. It is a mess. Like there are things that are happening in our world that just shouldn't happen. This Tuesday, I will be officiating a memorial service for a young man who was killed in a car accident a couple weeks ago, two Wednesdays ago. It shouldn't happen. Our world is a mess. And, and, and God is powerfully transforming lives through the word of the cross. That's what Paul says here. He's doing that, and he's doing it in the way that only God is able to do it. When God planned to cleanse the, the, the violence of the, of the earth in Noah's day, he did it through a flood. We're told that 
God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And he flooded the earth. And people look back and are like, that's ridiculous. Why would he do that? And, and how was he able to do it with a boat? Like, I mean, think about Noah. Hey, Noah. In a day where they weren't, they'd never even really seen rain. It's going to rain. Oh, okay. What, what does that mean? Um, and I want you to build a boat. It's going to take you over 100 years to build that boat. And there are a lot of people around you, outside of your family, they are going to think you're nuts. In fact, the Bible calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. God is in the business of doing crazy things to turn the world upside down in a way that only God is able to turn the world upside down in a good way. In a good way. Like Abraham, uh, who's in the Old Testament, was called out of the uh, city of Ur. He was a moon worshiper. He didn't even worship the God of uh, the Bible that we read about. And he, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to call you. You're going to be my man. I want you to go to a land. I'll show you. Don't worry. I'm going to show you later where, where that is. So Abraham uproots his family and, and uh, his, his wife, because he didn't have children, which is really awkward. Originally, his name was Abram, father of many. And, you know, in those days, you wanted to have children, and they couldn't have children. And every time his name was mentioned, father of many, he was reminded uh, I don't have any children yet. And so God says, hey, guess what? Not only am I going to lead you to a land that I'll show you later, but you're going to be the father of a multitude. And we're going to change your name to reflect that too. Not only will you be called, you're not going to be called Abram anymore, it's Abraham. And so he went out. And what did God do? He waited. I mean, this is the crazy thing about Abraham and Sarah. Uh, he waited until they were like really old, like way past childbearing age. Like I thought, like I was getting closer to 40 when, wait, uh, maybe I was 40. I forget how old I was. Anyway, when Seth, our youngest, we found out that he was going to be, he was going to be a thing. He was going to be our son. And my wife and I looked at each other and were like, well, this is going to change our lives. And, and so I thought, I thought like I was old. Like Abraham was, man, he was like, old like yoda old <laughs> he was sarah was like in her 90s abraham was approaching 100 or whatever when he when when god said hey this is going to happen sarah was like that's ridiculous and she laughed and what happened she got pregnant imagine that you're in your 90s and you're pregnant with your first child god does crazy ridiculous things to do what only he can do to transform a world that's just just a mess yeah, conventional wisdom was recommended to Abraham. You, you know, you're old. You can still father a child. Obviously, your wife can't. So you should, you should get one of your servants pregnant. And, I mean, everybody else is doing it. You should do it too. And, and, and he tried it, and it didn't work. Like, they had a child, but it messed everything up until God got, uh, enabled Sarah to get pregnant. And there's all kinds of stories. Like if you read Hebrews chapter 11, I'll just read a little snippet of it, of all kinds of stuff that God would do. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but, uh, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By the way, it's funny because archaeologists are like, that could never have happened. And then there was a find, I don't know how long ago, where they found the walls of Jericho and they came down from, with, from the inside, it looked like, which is, which is crazy because our, archaeologists are like, ah, nobody, nobody can blow horns, walk around a, a city for a bunch of times and then shout and uh, the walls come 
tumbling down. And that's exactly with our, what archaeology or the archaeologists have said possibly could have happened. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And, and what more shall I say? It continues. Uh, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, and David, and Samuel, and, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, or obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. God's in the business of using weak people to accomplish what only he can do through a crazy, ridiculous-sounding message, the word of the cross. So we read in verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. If you're a Christian in this room, you're a Christian because a miracle happened in your life. Something that only God could do, he did. And I believe there are some of you in this room who are not Christians yet, and God's going to do the same miracle in your life. He's going to give you ears to hear. He's going to give you eyes to see. He's going to soften your heart to receive the greatest news in the universe, that Jesus died on a cross according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And, and when Paul, you know, when he, was writing, when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, he highlighted the fact that for the Jew, the crucifixion of Jesus was the ultimate proof that Jesus was cursed of God. There's an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy that says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus was crucified on a tree. And for the Greek, that is the Gentile, that's people like us, you know, people who eat ham sandwiches and pepperoni pizza, that kind of person. Like, uh, the story of, of suffering God who died and physically rose from the grave sounded ridiculous. It sounded ridiculous. And the Christian has one message to proclaim that tears down such strongholds of disbelief, and that is the proclamation of the gospel through the power of God's Spirit, that Jesus Christ died, buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave. And to those who God calls out of darkness, out of the darkness of disbelief, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And, and our Savior's resurrection demonstrates that. When you compare Christianity to every other world religion, Christianity is the only one that offers a solution to sin. And our founder, when he died, did not stay dead. I say this often. One, one of these days, somebody's going to get really angry with me because Siddhartha Gautama, the founder of Buddhism, he died one of his teeth is in the giant pagoda in Yangon in Myanmar. It's huge. That's where my, some of my family live. And uh, at the top of it is a 75-carat diamond for a tooth for a man who had bad rice porridge and died of food poisoning. Muhammad is dead. The founder of the Moonies, I think he died of pneumonia or cancer or something. 
Like every, every religious leader who died stayed dead. There's one who rose again, and it's Jesus. And it wasn't just a story that they, they, they shared with one another or fabricated. Like multiple people witnessed his resurrection. And it left them changed forever. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, Paul wrote in verse 25. And this good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, affected the disciples so profoundly, so profoundly, that when they were faced with the loss of property and of death, they said, give me death, give me death, because I know for a fact that my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, he rose on the third day and he lives. And every single one of the disciples, with the exception of John, died a violent, horrific death. Every single one of them. And when like, I think of like Peter and John, I mean, think about just, I've been thinking about John lately, the apostle. I've been reading the Gospel of John and I was reflecting on the book of Revelation this, yes, yesterday because he wrote that also. But I was thinking about him. I was thinking about the disciples. You know, this, the story of the resurrection, like if you were making it up, here's some things that you would not do if you were making it up. One, you would not make a woman the first witness of the resurrection. I'm serious. Like in that culture, you wouldn't do it. It would be a guy. Maybe a strong guy. Maybe a good-looking guy. But not a woman. And, uh, and it was a woman. It was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, of all people, she was the one who witnessed Jesus' resurrection first. And, so, and, and then the women want to go you know, check out the tomb not because they expected Jesus to rise from the grave, but because they wanted to finish wrapping like, ointment and stuff around, around the body, basically to cover up the smell of death. And uh, when they arrived to the tomb on the third day, which I believe was a Sunday, they saw the stone rolled away. And we're told that when they uh, saw this thing, they were blown away. Like, they were blown away. Like, what, what, what's going on? What, Where's the body? And they were told by these two angels, why are you looking for the dead? Uh, you know, why are you looking for this dead Jesus? He's risen. So I was thinking about a lot of that. So, I mean, I was thinking about John. Just, let me just back up a little bit. So John, like if you read the Gospel of John, you, you know that John was always next to Jesus. Like in the upper room, just hours before Jesus was to be betrayed, he was, lean, he was leaning against Jesus. He was always around Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. It was James, John, and Peter. So John, John was very close to him. And when all the disciples fled because they were afraid, you know who was at the foot of Jesus' cross? It was John. And he was with Jesus' mother and some of the other women that were a part of Jesus' ministry. Like, John was there. He was there when he saw them crucify Jesus, and he was there when he witnessed the two thieves on the right and the left mock Jesus at the beginning. They were mocking him. Both of them were mocking him. And then something changed in one of the thieves' attitudes, and, 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 and he said, will you remember me? He looked at Jesus and said, will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And John was there when Jesus said to the thief, who did nothing to earn what Jesus was about to say to him, when he was there when he heard Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Meaning, the, the thief, the reason why he was in heaven that day after he breathed his final breath was because Jesus invited him there. 
period. It wasn't because he did anything. At some point he believed that there's something different about this one on the cross in the center here. John heard everything that Jesus said in his final hours. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. John listened as Jesus turned his gaze to his mother as John was standing next to him. And he heard these words, woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. John, I want you to take care of my mom. John heard Jesus plead with God for the first time when instead, instead of using father, Jesus directly referred to his father as God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then as if, he, if John needed any reminding uh, that the Lord of glory hung before him, suffering as a suffering servant, the servant that we read about in Isaiah 53, Jesus said, I thirst. Here's this one who was fully God and fully man. And in that moment, it was obvious he was fully man. He thirsted on the cross. Why did he thirst? Because he needed to say something. He needed to say two things. In the final moments leading up to his death, he cried out, it is finished. And then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. John witnessed all of that. He witnessed all of that. And every single disciple, including John, expected that that was the end of it. That's why they were so messed up when Jesus told them, I'm going to die. That's why they fled when Jesus was arrested. They were messed up over it. And they thought, that was it. He's dead. Now what do we do? And when the women came into the tomb on the third day to anoint the body of Jesus and found that he was not there and heard these men in white shiny garments say to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Mark tells us that they, that they ran away terrified. <laughs> why? Because the dead just don't get up and walk out of tombs. And when they came to tell the disciples, <laughs> here's, here's the funny thing, they didn't believe them. Like they didn't believe the women. So John and Peter ran to the tomb. It was like a race. Like who could get there the, the fastest? And John beat Peter and he ran into the tomb and discovered exactly what the women said. There was no body. There was no body. And, and we're told that later Jesus appeared to Peter, John, and the rest of the disciples. Thomas was one of them. He said, man, I... It, I will not believe that Jesus rose from the grave unless I can touch his hands and touch his side. And then Jesus appeared. He said, ta-da! <laughs> and, and, Tom, and, and he said, here, feel it. Feel my side. And then Thomas's response is, my Lord and my God. And then we're told that over 500 people, Jesus appeared to over 500 people in the course of those, those days after his resurrection. If the resurrection was just a story, none of the disciples and none of the people who witnessed his resurrection would have been willing to lose their property over a myth or over a story that was just fabricated. And the last time that John and Peter saw their resurrected Christ, Jesus warned Peter that he would one day die. He would die in a way that he didn't want to die, that he would not want to die. It's in John chapter 21. I, I, they're walking side by side, and Jesus said to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And we're told Peter looked 
John was behind him. He looked at John and said, well, what about, what about him? Like, is, he gonna, is his life going to be all jacked up like mine? Like, he just, like I'm going to die? And Jesus said, don't worry about him. If I want him to remain until he sees my coming, then that's between me and him. You, you follow me, Peter. And like I said, it is, it is believed that Peter was crucified, and when they went to crucify him, he requested that he be crucified upside down. I don't know how true that is, but we know Peter died a violent death. And then 30 years after Peter's death, John, who had suffered much as a result of sharing the gospel, believing in the word of the cross, John was exiled on this island called Patmos. I mean, I want you to think about John as I draw this to a close. I want you to think about John for a moment. John, John lived probably until his 90s. Here he is an old man, exiled on the island of Patmos alone. It is said that his legs or his feet were boiled in oil to keep him from being able to walk. I don't know when that happened, if it happened before Patmos or after. He's alone, and, he, and he, all of his friends are dead. The, the woman, the, the mother of Jesus that he was told to, by Jesus to care for, she's, she was dead in heaven. They're all gone, and here he is on the island. And God said to him while on the island, I'm going to show you some things, John, and I want you to write these things down to encourage my people, to encourage the church, Christians who are suffering. Literally, he says, to show my servants the things that must soon take place. And, and the whole purpose of the book of Revelation, and I, one of these days I'll preach through the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is not to tell you how the world's going to end, but to encourage a suffering church that Jesus Christ is king. He didn't stay dead. He walked out of the tomb. He ascended to heaven, and he promises to come back to judge the living and the dead and make all that is wrong with this world right again. And so John, you know, no doubt, John was, it, it was encouraged as he saw these things and experienced these things like, uh, through, all through the book of Revelation. It's just mind-blowing what he experienced. But he, in Revelation chapter 4, he, he heard the angels sing uh, of, of God Almighty, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Every time the seraphim, which were these angels, these crazy-looking, scary-looking angel angels, uh, would sing this and, and shout this, the 24 elders would fall down before God and worship him, see, casting down their crowns as they would say to the one on the throne, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Meaning, John, don't lose heart. All your friends are in heaven. I get it. You're suffering. You can barely walk. I understand. But I'm going to turn this thing around, and I'm doing it through the word of the cross. Everything culminates as we get to Revelation chapter 5. And I just want to camp there just as I, as I end my message. And John is there, and he, and he sees this, this thing that is happening before his eyes. And, and what he sees is, is he sees the throne room of God, and he sees God on the throne, and God the Father on the throne. And he, he sees on, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, I don't know exactly what that scroll is. Some think it's like the deed of all creation. It, 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 it's, a, it's a metaphor. It's a picture of that there is only one person who is qualified to open that scroll. And the person qualified to open that scroll is the one who, 
who has the right and the ability and the, and, and the willingness to redeem lost creation. John sees this thing, and he's, and he's like just captivated, and, and, and the question was proclaimed by a mighty angel, proclaimed with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And this is what happens. So remember, John was close to Jesus, and all of his friends are gone, and he spent a lifetime preaching and proclaiming the word of the cross, and it was worth it. It was even worth being island, exiled on the island of Patmos. And he's here, he's, he sees that everything is happening, and, and the, the question goes out, and, and then when nobody answers right away, John begins to sob like, like ugly tears. Like he just, it's just, he's crying. So he says that he was weeping loudly. Why is he weeping loudly? Because if no one is worthy to open the scroll, then there's no hope. There's no hope. The funeral that I'm doing on, on Tuesday, I, I have every reason to believe that this young man had placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ just by talking with members of his family and, and hearing from some of the friends. But if, there was, if he had not placed his faith and trust in Jesus, there's no hope. It's just only weeping. Gnashing of teeth, that's the way hell is described. If there's no resurrected Jesus, there's no hope. So John weeps. And here's, here's the great thing about this. And he's weeping. And here's what is said to him. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Speaking of Jesus. And so John's looking, okay, so where's this lion? And, when, and he focuses attention on this person who's standing. He, he, he recognizes him, and he recognizes him as a lamb, not curled up in the fetal position, sucking his thumb in defeat. He is standing victoriously. Why is he standing victoriously? Because he died as the lamb of God. He was buried in a tomb, and on the third day he rose as the lion of Judah. He is the resurrected one. And so, so, the, so, so the, the, one of the elders in heaven says, weep no more. Weep no more, John. There's no reason to cry. There's no reason to weep. And it's the same is true for you and I you know, in this room. That w- w- there's no reason to weep like the rest of the world that weeps when death is experienced. The Lion of Judah is the rightful heir of the throne of David, the Messianic King, who will make all things new. He's going to make all things new. And I just want to read the passage. And the worship team can come up um, and close us out in a, in a song. Uh, it's, it's in... It's, yeah, I just want you, to, I want you to hear this. In verse, verse 8. So weep no more, John. There's one. There's one worthy to open the scroll. He's the only one. He's the only one qualified because he's got to be, he's got to be God. He has to, have the, he has to be equal with God, the authority of God. He has to be God. And here you have God the Son who is also fully man. And he's got to be a man. He's got to be fully man. He's got to be one who died for our sins. And he's got to be one who conquered the grave. Weep no more because here he is. It's the Lion of Judah. And John says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Listen, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Meaning he, what he did on the cross was, was enough, was enough to cover all your sins. And he is redeeming through the word of the cross people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the, 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 the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and all god's people say to that amen amen hey if you're here and you've uh not you're not a christian or maybe you're trying to figure it out i just want you to hear these words you don't have to do anything you're like the thief on the cross all you got to do is receive this gift that Jesus has provided. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. That there's salvation found in no one else but the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.